This is the most important point. Like, what incentive are we going to give to Russia to stop? Sorry, like, security guarantees, a piece of paper is not enough. He literally said that he doesn't see the kind of targets that Ukraine could immediately use these missiles on. And that was just an open lie. We are fighting their main enemy for them. Like, what could be a better investment than this? This is the exact strategy that they were hoping for, to tire out the West. So they can keep pushing. So they can keep moving forward. Russia is not lacking resources, not lacking men, armored vehicles, ammunition, and it's not lacking in confidence either. Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kyiv Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Francis Farrell to discuss this dark new phase in Russia's war and why the prospect of losing has once again become a real risk for Ukraine. Francis, as always, welcome back. Always good to be back. Before we go on, we've got two things to tell you guys. One is, of course, as always, I'll encourage you to subscribe to The Kim Independent wherever you're listening to the show, whether that's on YouTube or on audio platforms. Leave comments, likes. It's really important for us because it takes just a second of your time, but that is what helps YouTube and other platforms promote our podcast so more people see it and more people stay informed about the war in Ukraine. And secondly, we've got exciting news. The Kim Independent's War Crimes Investigations Unit just released its latest documentary, Faces of Torture, which delves into the stories of tortured Ukrainian prisoners of war in the notorious Olenivka prison, which is in occupied territories of Donbass, run by Russia. You can find the movie on YouTube and make sure to go watch it. We'll link it in the description below. So, Francis, we brought you here today because several days ago, you wrote an excellent opinion piece for the Kim Independent. Arguing, amongst other things, that the West and the United States in particular don't really want a complete Ukrainian victory. Now, we're two years into Russia's war and, you know, we already have seen more than $100 billion just from the United States being committed to helping us. So for someone just looking at this from the outside, that sure does seem like a big, big commitment to help Ukraine. So what exactly did you mean in your op-ed? To start with the question about whether the West wants Ukrainian victory, I think, I think it's pretty clear. You just have to look back dozens and dozens of public statements, whether they're from Biden, from even Blinken and Austin, the defense secretary who, you know, they're all big supporters of Ukraine in theory, Schultz, Macron, these people. You very rarely, in fact, maybe even never hear them talk specifically about what Ukrainians talk all the time about, which is liberating all the occupied territory, returning to the 1991 sovereign borders of Ukraine, taking back Crimea. Like, there's a reason for that. And there's a reason that instead of that, you hear this rhetoric of, we are here with Ukraine. You know, Russia will never have victory in Ukraine. We will support Ukraine. For as long as it takes, you have that from the Americans, from the Europeans. You have Lloyd Austin, who came to Kiev just a week ago, saying we're in for the long haul. I don't really understand how they can be in for the long haul because the U.S. is a democratic country with elections in a year. So everyone could be replaced in a year's time. So that's not much of a long haul. But, I mean, almost every weapon system 
that Ukraine received, there's very little reason for them not to have received it a long time ago. It's, it's just this strange, strange timeline where Ukraine, for example, asks for F-16s for months and months and months. And everyone says for a long time, well, we can't do it. No, we can't do it. Too much escalation. And then finally, when things have just reached a certain point in time, they're like, okay, you can have some F-16s. And the same was the case for Western tanks. The same was the case for Attackums missiles, these long-range or not so long-range missiles. With Attackums, for example, it's one of these good examples. If you look at the rhetoric, the public statements, when these officials are asked, why isn't Ukraine getting this? They always have this strange line of reasoning that this is not what Ukraine needs right now. We assess that Ukraine can fulfill this role with other systems or something along those lines. Ukraine doesn't need it, really. And there was a, a deputy U.S. defense secretary or someone high in the, in the defense department giving an interview about this. And he, he literally said that he doesn't see the kind of targets that Ukraine could immediately use these missiles on. And that was just an open lie. Like when Ukraine got the shorter range cluster variations of attackums, they immediately put them to very effective use on these Russian airfields, these Russian helicopters, which had worked for months to hammer the Ukrainian forces that were leading this counteroffensive in the South. So, and... You know, that, that rhetoric is, is still there with the longer range versions of Attackums. And then you have the German Taurus long range missile, which would be very useful for Ukraine because it hits everything in the occupied territories. And it has a really powerful kind of dual stage warhead that would be really useful for hitting protected targets in Crimea, like the Crimean Bridge. And German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has said that He's basically admitted that he's scared of the Ukrainians using this missile against the bridge. Uh, that would be too much escalation. Again, too much bringing in um, apparently Germany into this war with Russia, which time and time again has been proven wrong. Germans have given tanks. They've given patriots. They've We've hit the Crimean bridge multiple times. Nothing really happened yeah. in terms of escalation. After yeah, that. I mean... There's a little bit of a valid fear when it comes to the nuclear threat because Russia's actions all dependent on the mind of one crazy dictator, Putin. No one thought he would invade Ukraine, and he did. And there is a bit of a worry that if Ukraine were to really win the whole war and you know, his whole dream of this empire that he's building, the Crimean dream, goes up in flames, then or threatens to go up in flames, then, then he could do that. But again, that's Ukraine's risk that Ukraine is taking and Ukraine's ready to take it. See, that makes me really question why the U.S. and the collective West would get into this whole debacle to begin with. Like, why start pouring in so much money if the way you're pouring that money into Ukraine, like the method by which you're doing that, it only prolongs you know, the amounts of money and the time that you have to dedicate, like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't do it in a way to swiftly end this. They do it to prolong it um, from at least our assessment. And the way I have understood it kind of so far, and of course, this is not some sort of general Ukrainian understanding, this is just me, but it looks like it's not so much about the Ukrainians winning and returning to 1991 borders. 
it's more about sucking as much as possible from Russia, right? Because Russia is the arch enemy of the U.S., obviously. So this whole thing actually benefits the U.S. a lot, which is which is why I don't really understand Republicans saying that, you know, helping Ukraine win this war is not in their interest. Of course, it's in their interest. They don't have, you know, a single soldier on the ground other than the trainings and stuff. We are fighting their main enemy for them. Like, what could be a better investment than this? So yeah. in, in my mind, they're doing this for so long to completely kind of suck as much as possible from the Russian military capacity. But unfortunately, as good as that may sound, you know, that also means hundreds of thousands of lives lost here in Ukraine. Yeah, it's an interesting argument. I'm not sure I'd be 100% on board with it because unfortunately, because of this war, Russia is now, you know, really putting itself on a war footing and, and upping its own military capacity. But yeah, I mean, what has happened is that because there was a chance, we've talked about this before, like last autumn, you know, Russia had just started mobilization. Mm -hmm. Ukraine had just achieved these brilliant counteroffensive victories. Russian defenses were in shambles. They hadn't started building this long sort of Ekin line of defense. And, you know, if, if the West had acted at the start and already provided by then what Ukraine needed to win a short war, then we wouldn't be here where, exactly. where now the West is, is struggling to just keep up industrially when it, because the most important thing remains mm -hmm. artillery shells. And now the West has to look all over the world to South Korea. But it didn't um, have to be this way. It, it didn't have to be this way. And, and, you know, you talk about Republicans. This is maybe one area where, strangely, I might even agree with some of these dissenting Republicans who ask, I mean, coming from different angles here, who ask Biden and the administration, well, what is the plan? That what, is a good question. I agree. What is, yeah. the, what is the plan? What is the ultimate, gain, ultimate goal here? So where has all of this left Ukraine politically and militarily, right? We started the episode um, describing this dark new phase in Russia's war. So what exactly did you mean by that? So, I mean, nothing is like critical right now, but you need to look ahead. And the signs are bad in many ways, because a lot of this discussion about this new, perhaps darker, more difficult phase of the war was triggered by First, the piece in Time magazine about Zelensky and his so-called lonely fight for victory. But more importantly, I think, was the piece by Ukrainian Commander-in-Chief Valery Zeluzhny. He had an interview in The Economist, but they also published a whole kind of essay by him about this new stage of the war where it's brutal and positional and attacking is very difficult at this point because both sides have dug in and about what kind of innovative kind of breakthroughs are needed to get the upper hand over the enemy. And a lot of people were saying, oh, Zaluzhny is admitting that it's a stalemate. I thought it was actually quite optimistic, to be honest, because it was still talking about, you know, Ukraine and Russia are at parity there. They're fighting hard and both sides are looking to, to get the upper hand. Zaluzhny is right, of course. And, and the problem is that we're not dealing with the same Russia that we were dealing with in the first months of the war. We're not even dealing with the same Russian army that we're dealing that we had a year ago when the Battle of Bakhmut was was starting. We're dealing with country, a huge country, which has a history of just winning wars by brute force. It, it has a huge domestic military industrial complex, which has now revived and ramping up production. And when it comes to innovation, which Zaluzhny talked about, when you're talking about drones, electronic warfare, unfortunately, 
the Russians have caught up. They they see Ukraine innovating, they copy it, and and but then what Ukraine can't do, they allocate huge amounts of state resources to to do this on a on a higher scale than than Ukraine can. And they didn't only catch up from from what I hear uh, from people on the front line is that they're actually kind of winning. Their and, drones and their electronic warfare capabilities are quite strong, and yeah. our forces are struggling a lot with that. I mean, you look at the Russian Landsat drone, which, yeah. which you know, if you, if you look at the videos of the Landsats at work, it, it gets pretty depressing pretty quickly. You look, and Russia has also really upped its FPV drone production. Mm-hmm. They've traditionally had an advantage in electronic warfare, which jams these drones. So it's a tough point in time. And then on top of that, which is perhaps the scarier part, are these revelations, not really revelations, but, you know, talk of Western support being under threat and, and drying up. If you take, first of all, the US, we have all these issues with the Republicans, not many Republicans not wanting to pass the Ukraine aid funding uh, mm-hmm. in the next big, big kind of component. And, and that could be even just with time, with time more under threat in the future. And again, we talked about how they have elections soon. And then in Europe, you have headlines in Politico, for example, about how Viktor Orban wants to blow up the EU's Ukraine policy. And the Europeans have been slow, but they also provide a lot of crucial, crucial ammunition, air defense, and other equipment. So Ukraine can't take the current levels of, of military aid for granted, unfortunately. And when those crucial aid flows perhaps slow down or start to dry up, then I'm sorry, there's a question for the West. You can't take Ukraine's survival for granted because we're talking uh, ammunition for 155 millimeter howitzers, ammunition for mortars, ammunition for air defense, ammunition for the HIMARS system. Like if that starts to run out, then I'm sorry, but Ukraine doesn't have anything to fight with. If the (laughs) the Russians start moving forward, then, then Ukraine just won't have the ammunition to hit them with and they will just keep keep moving forward. So it's just a point where we need to reset and realize this risk and realize that just because Ukraine won this stunning battle for Kiev two years the, ago. Two years ago and and had a few other good moments since then, like that doesn't mean that independent Ukraine is necessarily safe and secure forever. We've talked plenty on this podcast about the fact that Everyone pretty much came to terms already with the fact that the counteroffensive has been disappointing. Like it pretty much failed. Not a lot of territory has been liberated and it ended. But I remember before, you know, the beginning of the counteroffensive, of course, it was ramped up as this like ultimate operation that's going to help Ukraine break through Russia's defensive lines in the south, right? You know, between Kherson, Militopol, Zaporizhia, that area. And that was going to be our ultimate way to like get to Crimea and ultimately win the war. Like it was really grand thinking. None of that happened, of course. And now it actually seems like Russia is back to take initiative. So how did we, how did we get here? And like, what's, what's next for us now militarily and strategically speaking? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. The counteroffensive, the hope was that this would be the obvious kind of quick path, quick road to a complete victory, a successful counteroffensive in the south, splitting the occupied territory in half, putting pressure on Crimea, so on, so on. Uh, and, that, and that didn't happen. The front line is more and more static and positional, you know, incredibly 
tough battles are fought just for a kilometer of territory or one field, one tree line. You just have to fight better and destroy the enemy everywhere a lot more efficiently. And they're wearing you down. So it becomes this really brutal numbers game about shells, about men, about drones. And, and you know, Ukraine needs to, with time, as, as that positional attritional warfare continues, Ukraine needs to be the one that slowly gets the upper hand and degrades the Russian military more than the Russian military degrades Ukraine. Well, because right now it's, it's much more about surviving rather than winning. Yeah, and, and that's why the way Russia has attacked in Avdiivka is, is, you know, kind of hilarious if you like watching videos of, of destroyed Russian tanks, but not so hilarious if you're thinking about the strategic plan, because it shows that Russia is not lacking resources, not lacking men, armored vehicles, ammunition, and it's not lacking in confidence either. They're like, okay, now it's our turn. We'll fight the Russian way. Yes, we'll lose a lot, but we'll just keep hammering you and keep going forward. And that could be a kind of dark foreshadowing of, of the way the war could go for a lot of 2024. Well, because Ukraine can't really do that, right? Like, as, as big as our losses have also been, even if the Ukrainian military might not be thrilled to, you know, say that openly. But we know that our losses have also been huge. But we still can't afford to lose, like, I don't know, 600, 700, 500, however many men daily you know, for prolonged periods of time. And Russia can, and it's, it's been doing that. Yeah, and this brings us to another question. We can talk all about the responsibility of the West, what they've done wrong, what they should do in the future. But there's another side to this, of course, that's Ukraine itself. Of course. Uh, and you can look at the situation in the, in the country and, and think about like what, what mistakes are being made here. Strategic mistakes on the battlefield, the constant problem of, of corruption and misconduct through the government, through, through the, the military, you know. The societal fatigue as well. The societal fatigue, the, the problem with mobilization, that's pressure that from all, all directions that Ukraine can't continue to withstand indefinitely, even if some Western aid continues to trickle in. Of course, another way out of the situation of the war other than a complete Ukrainian victory, is some sort of peace talks. And most Ukrainians get extremely frustrated when you say this phrase. But we're going to raise this topic anyway, because I think it really needs to be explained, especially for a foreign audience. So why has been the issue of peace talks, well, why has it become so contentious in the Ukrainian space and also internationally? Like why Ukrainians get immediately frustrated and immediately push back anytime foreign leader tries to call for peace. When it comes to peace talks, let's, let's get down to the very basics because a lot of the time people get these basics very wrong when they talk about peace talks. For countries who are in two states who are fighting a war over territory, for peace to happen, for them to stop fighting, they both need to agree, right? And if both sides are very, very tired and exhausted and they can see there's no point continuing, then you might have some kind of mutual agreement to just, to just stop. An example, maybe the Iran-Iraq war back in the 80s, for example. But otherwise, if the war is going in one, one side's, side's favor, favor. And, and both sides are talking about this war as being, for some reason, existential, for Ukraine, it's about survival. 
as, as an independent state. And for Russia, well, they have their own propaganda reasons for, for calling it existential. So no side wants to stop, but it's going in one side's favor. Then it's, it's, you might reach kind of point, a breaking point where it's the losing side, right? Ukraine winning, in this, at this moment. For example, Ukraine, who wants to, who says we need to sue for peace, we need to stop now. And Russia will have demands for Ukraine. You know, they'll be like, well, give us the rest of Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast, for example. Give us the rest of Donetsk Oblast, because those are now part of Russia, apparently. Um, and so Ukraine will have to give up a lot, humiliate themselves, put themselves in a bad position, just in the hope of not losing more. And then you come to the question of dealing with Russia, for whom a, a piece of paper doesn't mean anything. They've already seen that this works and, you know, what incentive, this is the most important point, like what incentive are we going to give to Russia to stop, to stop the wish to go forward, to take more Ukrainian territory, whether it's with peace talks, without peace talks right now on the battlefield or, or in five years time or in 10 years time, that's, that's why the pressure needs to be put back on Russia because, because Usually, like among the Elon Musks of the world, for example, you have this very strange causal convenient logic where it's like, okay, well, you stop, you know, you slow down the aid to Zelensky. And so you force Zelensky to negotiate. And so you can just imagine Zelensky sitting down at a table. All right, I've been forced to negotiate, but Russia needs to be there too. And then if, if they're coming to a table in a situation where Ukraine is, is clearly losing, is under pressure, and they might not get any weapons anymore from the West. Well, then what, you know, what's Russia going to say? Well, uh, give us as much as you can, and, and maybe we can, we can have peace. But they might not even come to the table in the first place, because this is the exact strategy that they were hoping for, to tire out the West. Uh, so they can keep pushing. So they can keep moving forward. Uh, we know Russia, they tried to take Kiev. They tried to take the Ukrainian capital and they still want it now. They still talk about it all the time. Let's be real. Nothing about Russia's campaign to destroy an independent Ukraine and take as much of it as possible has changed. They still openly say that they want to subjugate the entire territory of Ukraine, like two years later. So even if Zelensky does succumb to this apparent Western pressure or comes to the negotiating table, why would Russia agree to negotiate if they have the upper hand? Like it only works in their favor to keep going, right? Yeah. And, and now I'll say at some point, you know, again, it's about connecting with reality. If a complete Ukrainian victory liberating all the territory is seen as a long, long way away, perhaps even impossible at this point, if we accept that, then at least the absolute minimum, in fact, the most important thing now is to put Ukraine in a position where it's Russia who wants to sit down and, and stop in some way. And that, that way must be either Ukrainian success on the battlefield, really getting the upper hand, and that means a lot more Western aid, or perhaps maybe long-range missile strikes all over Crimea, you know, destroying the bridge once and for all destroying the Black Sea fleet once and for all, these airfields, just making Putin understand that if he continues this brutal battle on the front line, then, then his Crimean dream will fall apart. Something like that, just any reason for Russia to now come and, and, and say, no, we want to stop now. So Ukraine basically has to have 
an upper hand for any negotiation to take place and to take place in a way that would be fair. And also negotiations being fair is one thing. A whole other really important part of it is what Western officials often talk about, the durable and just peace. So the durable part is really key here because we've seen in the past, you know, in, in the Chechen wars, for example, that Russia has no problem with, you know, signing a truce, pretending to have a peaceful resolution and then coming back several years later, stronger, you know, still devoted to destroy a state. So, and this is definitely a fear among Ukrainians here that, you know, we're going to have to now forever as, you know, for as long as Russia is our neighbor, we're going to have to be a heavily militarized state to constantly be on alert, even after some sort of peace negotiation, even if we win this war, because Russia is always going to be a threat, it can always come back. So, you know, that is a whole other portion of this peace talk discussions that I think the Elon Musk's of the world and Trump's of the world are not really taking into consideration. Yeah. So again, to boil it down to the most important elements, I remember the US mission to NATO posted this thing at the same time as Austin visited Kiev saying we're focused on set of, setting the conditions for a durable and just peace or something like that. And the problem is they're not. They're not doing enough. So there are two things here. The, firstly, they need to, again, as we said, put the pressure back on Russia to give uh, Russia an incentive to want to stop. And that's the beginning. You need to reach that point to even begin talking about a durable and just peace. And then what comes after is, sorry, like security guarantees, a piece of paper is not enough. What is needed is continued Western aid. To, to Ukraine to make them stronger and stronger, to understand, to make Russia understand they can't do this again, and NATO membership, just to make sure. I think, I think we've talked about NATO before. I think it's just, it's just absolutely necessary at this point to, to end this story and end this threat once and for all. People talk about the threat of Russia invading the Baltic states, for example, or wanting to invade Poland. Russian propagandists talk about that all the time. but. We know that those countries are behind the shield of NATO membership. That's the reason why they're pretty comfortable at the moment. And countries like Estonia are happy to give almost all of their heavy military equipment to Ukraine because they understand we got in, we got into NATO and we're safe now. As Article 5, you know, there's all this Cold War stuff that hasn't been canceled. And, and Ukraine, you know, to end this story, to keep Ukraine safe in the future, needs to be behind that shield. We're now going to be moving to the community question of today's episode. As always, you guys should go to kimindependent.com slash membership to support our work. There's an option for a one-time donation and also a way to become a full member of our community for as little as $5 a month. You get really cool perks. Of course, our favorite perk is that you get to send us in questions before every single episode. And we try to incorporate as many of them as we can. So um, the question of today's episode is about the manpower issue. We've touched on this a little bit, but maybe we can dwell a little bit more. So the member is asking, can Ukraine avoid being just worn down and overwhelmed by Russian manpower advantages? How is Ukraine refilling its ranks at this point in the war? I think these are excellent questions because it's actually a big kind of societal problem at the moment as well, right? Excellent question. Something we talked about this uh, a little bit, but 
it's a very important part of this equation about time, about how long can this really go on at this intensity? Because the fact is that you had a wave of people, of very motivated patriotic people going to war at the very start. But that was two years ago. Um, but that was two years ago. And now looking at the way the war goes, I mean, I don't blame civilians who, who, who don't want to go now at this point. And so the, the flow of, of volunteers has basically gone to zero. And mm-hmm. Ukraine is a mobilized country. There's martial law. And, and that is, that's what's going on. So in terms of how Ukraine can avoid being overwhelmed, I mean, this is what we talked about all episode. Okay, they need to get the upper hand again on the battlefield. They need to basically work on destroying the Russian military. With machines instead of with waves of people. Yeah, in the most effective way, in the way that saves its own human lives. I mean, that's always been a priority compared to Russia, relative to Russia for Ukraine. But Ukraine also has to do really large-scale assault operations. And again, more support, more military equipment, more ammunition from the West because that saves lives on the battlefield. Well, Francis, thank you so much. It's always great to have you here. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Also this week, Mariana Budanova, the wife of Ukraine's military intelligence chief, Perilo Budanov, was poisoned by heavy metals and is now undergoing treatment. The Defense Intelligence said on November 28th. President Zelensky's office sent a delegation to the United States to meet and build relationships with the Republican Party in an effort to advocate for more aid for Ukraine. The Ukrainian delegation, which is headed by the ambassador Oksana Markarova, comprises Ukrainian parliamentaries, government officials, veterans, and children affected by Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. And a second Ukrainian top cyber official, former deputy head of the state's special communications service, was detained for state funds embezzlement. This comes less than two weeks after his boss, the head of the agency, was also charged with similar corruption. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Make sure to go to kuindependent.com membership to become a member of our community. Follow us on social media on X, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.